Little Women, Chapter 23, Artistic Attempts. It takes people a long time to learn the difference between talent and genius, especially ambitious young men and women. Amy was learning this distinction through much tribulation. For mistaking enthusiasm for inspiration, she attempted every branch of art with youthful audacity. For a long time, there was a lull in the mud pie business, and she devoted herself to the finest pen and ink drawing, in which she showed such taste and skill that her graceful handiwork proved both pleasant and profitable. But overstrained eyes soon caused pen and ink to be laid aside, and Amy fell to point painting with oils. An artist friend lifted her out with his cast-off. An artist friend fitted her out with his cast-off palettes, brushes, and colors, and she daubed away, producing pastoral and marine views such as were never seen on land or sea. Swarthy boys and dark-eyed Madonnas suggested Murillo. Oily brown shades of faces with a lurid streak in the wrong place meant Rembrandt. Buxom ladies and dropsical infants, Rubens. And Turner appeared in tempests of blue thunder, orange lightning, brown rain, and purple clouds with a tomato-colored splash in the middle, which might be the sun or a buoy, a sailor's shirt, or a king's robe. Charcoal portraits came next, and the entire family hung in a row, looking as wild and crocky as if just evoked from a coal bin. A return to clay and plaster followed, and ghostly casts of her acquaintances haunted the corners of the house, or tumbled off closet shelves onto people's heads. Then she undertook to cast her own pretty foot, and one day the family was alarmed by an unearthly bumping and screaming. Running to the rescue, they found the young enthusiast hopping wildly about the shed with her foot held fast in a panful of plaster, which had hardened with unexpected rapidity. With much difficulty and some danger, she was dug out, for Joe was so overcome with laughter that her knife cut the poor foot. After this, Amy subsided, until a mania for sketching from nature set her to haunting river, field, and wood for picturesque studies. She caught endless colds sitting on damp grass. She sacrificed her complexion floating on the river in the midsummer sun. Meanwhile, she was learning doing and enjoying other things, for she had resolved to be an attractive and accomplished woman, even if she never became a great artist. Here she succeeded better. Everybody liked her, for among her gifts was tact. One of her weaknesses was a desire to move in our best society, without being quite sure what the best really was. Money, position, fashionable accomplishments, and elegant manners were most desirable things in her eyes. I want to ask a favor of you, Mama, Amy said one day. Well, little girl, what is it? replied her mother, in whose eyes the stately young lady still remained a baby. Our drawing class breaks up next week, and before the girls separate for the summer, I want to ask them out here for a day. They are wild to see the river and sketch the broken bridge. They have been very kind, and I am grateful, for they are all rich. Yet that never made any difference. Why should they? And Mrs. March put the question with what the girls called her Maria Teresa air. You know as well as I do that it does make a difference with nearly everybody, so don't ruffle up like a dear motherly hen. Mrs. March laughed and asked, Well, what is your plan? I should like to ask the girls out to lunch next week, to take them a drive to the places they want to see, a row on the river, perhaps 
and make a little artist artistic fete for them. That looks feasible. What do you want for lunch? Cake, sandwiches, fruit, and coffee will be all that's necessary, I suppose. Oh, dear, no. We must have cold tongue and chicken, French chocolate, and ice cream besides. The girls are used to such things. How many young ladies are there? asked her mother. Twelve or fourteen, but I dare say they won't all come. Bless me, child. You'll have to charter an omnibus. Why, mother, how can you think of such a thing? Not more than six or eight will probably come, so I shall hire a beach wagon and borrow Mr. Lawrence's cherry bounce. Hannah's pronunciation of Charabanc. <clears throat> All this will be expensive, Amy. Not very. I've calculated the cost, and I'll pay for it myself. Don't you think, dear, that as these girls are used to such things, and the best we can do will be nothing new, that some simpler plan would be pleasanter to them as a change as if, if nothing more, and much better for us than buying or borrowing what we don't need. If I can't have it as I like, I don't care to have it at all. I know I can carry it out perfectly well if you and the girls will help. I don't see why I can't if I'm willing to pay for it, said Amy, with the decision which opposition was apt to change into obstinacy. Very well, Amy, if your heart is set on it, and you see your way through without too great of an outlay of money, time and temper, I'll say no more. Talk it over with the girls, and whichever way you decide, I'll do my best to help you. Thanks, mother, you are always so kind, and away went Amy to lay her plan before her sisters. Meg agreed at once and promised her aid, gladly offering anything she possessed, but Joe frowned on the whole project. Why in the world should you spend your money, worry your family, and turn the house upside down for a parcel of girls who don't care a sixpence for you? I thought you had too much pride. The, do the girls do care for me, and I for them, returned Amy indignantly, and there's a great deal of kindness and sense and talent among them. You don't care to make people like you, to go into good society, and cultivate your manners and tastes. I do, and I mean to make the most of every chance that comes. Much against her will... Joe at length consented to help her sister through what she considered a nonsensical business. The invitations were sent, nearly all accepted, and the following Monday was set apart for the grand event. Hannah was out of humor because her week's work was deranged. This hitch in the mainspring of the domestic machinery had a bad fit effect on the whole concern. Hannah's cooking didn't turn out too well. The chicken was tough, the tongue too salty, and the chocolate wouldn't froth properly. Then the cake and the ice cost more than Amy expected. So did the wagon, and various other expenses which seemed trifling at the outset counted up rather alarmingly afterward. Beth got a cold and went to bed. Meg had an unusual number of callers to keep her at home, and Joe was in a divided state of mind. If it hadn't been for Mother, I should never have got through, Amy declared afterwards. If it was not fair on Monday, the young ladies were to come on Tuesday an arrangement which aggravated Joe and Hannah to the last degree. On Monday morning, the weather was in that undecided state, which is more exasperating than a steady pour. Amy was up at dawn, hustling people out of their beds and through their breakfasts that the house might be got in order. She arranged chairs over the worn places in the parlor carpet, covered stains on the walls with framed picture in ivy, and filled empty corners with homemade statuary. The lunch looked charming, and as she surveyed it, Amy sincerely hoped it would taste well and that the borrowed glass, china, and silver would get safely home again. The carriages were promised. Meg and Mother were all ready to do the honors. Beth was able to help Hannah behind the scenes, 
and Joe had engaged to be as lively and amiable as an absent mind and aching head would allow. As she wearily dressed, Amy cheered herself with the anticipation of the happy moment when, lunch safely over, she should drive away with her friends for an afternoon of artistic delights. Then came two hours of suspense. A smart shower at eleven had evidently quenched the enthusiasm of the young ladies who were to arrive at twelve, for nobody came. At two, the exhausted family sat down in a blaze of sunshine to consume the perishable portions of the feast. No doubt about the weather today. They will certainly come, so we must fly around and be ready for them, said Amy as the sun woke her next morning. I can't get any lobsters, so you'll have to do without salad today, said Mr. March, coming in half an hour later. Use the chicken then. The toughness won't matter in a salad, advised his wife. Hannah left it on the kitchen table a minute, and the kittens got it. I'm very sorry, Amy, added Beth. Then I must have a lobster, for tongue alone won't do, said Amy. Shall I rush into town and demand one, asked Joe. You'd come bringing it home under your arm without any paper just to try me. I'll go myself, answered Amy. Shrouded in a thick veil and armed with a genteel traveling basket, she departed. After some delay, the object of her desire was procured, likewise a bottle of dressing. As the omnibus contained only one other passenger, a sleepy old lady, Amy pocketed her veil and beguiled the tedium of the way by trying to find out where all her money had gone to. So busy was she with her card full of refractory figures that she did not observe a newcomer who entered without stopping the vehicle until a masculine voice said, Good morning, Miss March. And looking up, she beheld one of Lori's most elegant college friends. Fervently hoping that he would get out before she did, Amy ignored the basket at her feet and congratulating herself that she had on her new traveling dress, returned the young man's greeting with her usual spirit. They got on excellently, for Amy's chief care was soon set at rest by learning the gentleman would leave first, and she was chatting away in a peculiarly lofty strain when the old lady got out. In stumbling to the door, she upset the basket, and the lobster, in all its vulgar size and brilliancy, was revealed. "'By Jove, she's forgotten her dinner,' cried the youth, poking the scarlet monster back into place with his cane and preparing to hand the basket out after the old lady. "'Please don't, as it's... it's mine,' murmured Amy, with a face nearly as red as her fish. "'Oh, really? I beg pardon. It's an uncommonly fine one, isn't it?' said Tudor, with great presence of mind. Amy recovered herself in a breath, set her basket boldly on the seat, and said, laughing, "'Don't you wish you were to have some of the salad he's to make and to see the charming young ladies who are to eat it?' Now that was tact, for the lobster was instantly surrounded by a halo of pleasing reminiscences and curiosity about the charming young ladies, diverted his mind from the comical mishap. "'I suppose he'll laugh and joke over it with Laurie, but I shan't see them,' thought Amy, as Tudor bowed and departed." She did not mention this meeting at home, though she discovered the upset had sent rivulets of dressing down the skirt of her new dress, but went through with the preparations which now seemed more irksome than before. At twelve o'clock all was ready, and Amy ordered the cherry bounce and drove away in state to meet her guests. "'There's the rumble. They're coming. I'll go into the porch to meet them,' and Mrs. March suited the action to word. But after one glance... She retired with an indescribable expression, for looking quite lost in the big carriage sat Amy and one young lady. "'Run, Beth, and help Han Hannah clear half the things off the table,' cried Joe, hurrying to put away, away to the lower regions. "'It will be too absurd to put on a luncheon for twelve before a single girl.' 
in came Amy, quite calm and delightfully cordial to the one guest who had kept her promise. The rest of the family played their parts equally well, and Miss Elliot found them a most hilarious set, for it was impossible to control entirely the merriment which possessed them. The remodeled lunch being gaily partaken of, the studio and gardens visited, and art discussed with enthusiasm. Amy ordered a buggy and drove her friend quietly about the neighborhood until sunset. As she came walking in, looking very tired, but as composed as ever, she observed that every vestige of the unfortunate fet had disappeared. "'You've had a lovely afternoon for your drive, dear,' said her mother, as respectfully as if the whole twelve had come. "'Miss Elliot is a very sweet girl who seemed to enjoy herself, I thought,' observed Beth with unusual warmth. "'Could you spare me some of your cake? I really need some, and I have so much company, and I can't make delicious stuff as yours,' asked Meg soberly. "'Take it all. I'm the only one here who likes sweet things, and it will mold before I can dispose of it,' answered Amy, thinking with a sigh of the generous store she had laid in. "'It's a pity Laurie isn't here to help,' began Joe as they sat down to ice cream and salad for the second time in two days. A warning look from her mother checked any further remarks, and the whole family ate in heroic silence until Mr. March mildly observed, "'Salad was one of the favorite dishes of the ancients, and Evelyn,' Here, a general explosion of laughter cut short by the history of salads, to the great surprise of the learned gentleman. "'Bundle everything into a basket and give it away,' cried Amy, wiping her eyes. "'I'm sick of the sight of this, and there's no reason you should all die of surfeit because I've been a fool.' "'I thought I should have died when I saw you two girls rattling about in the what-you-call-it, and mother waiting in state to receive the throng,' sighed Joe, quite spent with laughter. "'I'm very sorry you were disappointed, dear.' "'But we all did our best to satisfy you,' said Mrs. March, in a tone full of regret. "'I am satisfied. I've done what I undertook, and it's not my fault that it failed. "'I comfort myself with that,' said Amy, with a little quiver in her voice. "'I thank you all very much for helping me, and I'll thank you still more if you won't allude to it for a month.' "'No one did for several months, but the word fet always produced a general smile, "'and Lori's birthday gift to Amy was a tiny coral lobster in the shape of a charm for her watch guard.' Little Women, Chapter 24, Literary Lessons Fortune suddenly smiled on Joe and dropped a good luck penny in her path. Every few weeks, she would shut herself up in her room, put on her scribbling suit, and fall into a vortex, as she expressed it, writing away at her novel with all her heart and soul, for until that was finished, she could find no peace. When the writing fit came on, she gave herself up to it with entire abandon, and day and night were all too short. It usually lasted a week or two, then she emerged from her vortex, hungry, sleepy, cross, or despondent. She was just recovering from one of these attacks when she was prevailed on to escort Miss Crocker to a lecture, and in return for her virtue was rewarded with a new idea. It was a people's course and the lecture was on pyramids. They were early, and while Miss Crocker set the heel of her stocking, Joe amused herself by examining the faces of the people who occupied the seat with them. On her right, her only neighbor was a studious-looking lad absorbed in a newspaper. It was a pictorial sheet, and Joe saw a lurid illustration. Pausing to turn a page, the lad saw her looking, and with boyish good nature offered her half his paper, saying, Want to read it? That's a first-rate story. 
Joe accepted it with a smile and soon found herself involved in the usual labyrinth of love, mystery, and murder. Prime, isn't it? asked the boy as her eyes read the last paragraph. I think you and I could do as well if we tried, returned Joe. I should think I was pretty lucky if I could. She makes a good living out of such stories, they say, and he pointed to the name under the title of the tale. Do you know her? asked Joe with sudden interest. No, but I read all her pieces. She knows just what folks like and gets paid well for writing it. Here the lecture began, but Joe heard very little of it. She covertly took down the address of the paper, resolving to try for the hundred-dollar prize offered in its columns for a sensational story. By the time the lecture ended and the audience awoke, she had built up a splendid fortune for herself and was already deep in her story, being unable to decide whether the duel should come before the elopement or after the murder. She said nothing of her plan at home, but fell to work the next day. Her story was as full of desperation and despair as her limited acquaintance with those uncomfortable emotions enabled her to make it. And having located it in Lisbon, she wound up with an earthquake. The manuscript was privately dispatched accompanied by a note, modestly saying that if the tale didn't get the prize, she would be very glad to receive any sum it might be considered worth. Six weeks was a long time to wait and Joe was just beginning to give up all hope of ever seeing her manuscript again, when a letter arrived, which almost took her breath away, for on opening it, a check for $100 fell into her lap. For a minute, she stared at it as if it had been a snake. Then she read her letter and began to cry. Joe valued the letter more than the money because it was so encouraging. A prouder young woman was seldom seen than she when she electrified the family by appearing before them with the letter in one hand, the check in the other, announcing she had won the prize. Of course, there was a great jubilee, and when the story came, everyone read it and praised it, though her father shook his head and said, You can do better than this, Joe. Aim at the highest and never mind the money. I think the money is the best part of it. What will you do with such a fortune? asked Amy, regarding the magic slip of paper with a reverential eye. Send Beth and Mother to the seaside for a month or two, answered Joe promptly. Oh, how splendid! No, I can't do it, dear. It would be so selfish, cried Beth. Ah, but you shall go. I've set my heart on it. That's what I tried for, and that's why I succeeded. To the seaside they went, after much discussion. So Joe was satisfied with the investment of her prize money and fell to work with a cheery spirit bent on earning more of those delightful checks. She did earn several this, that year. The Duke's daughter paid the butcher's bill. A phantom hand put down a new carpet, and the curse of the Coventries proved the blessing of the marches for groceries and gowns. Little notice was taken of her stories, but they found a market and encouraged by this fat. She copied her novel for the fourth time and submitted it with fear and trembling to three publishers. She at last disposed of it on condition that she would cut down, she would cut it down one third and omit all the parts which she particularly admired. With Spartan firmness, the young authoress laid her firstborn on the table and chopped it up ruthlessly. Then, to complete the ruin, she cut it one third and confidently sent the story out into the busy world. It was printed and she got $300 for it. Likewise, plenty of praise and blame, both so much greater than she expected that she was thrown into a state of bewilderment 
from which it took her some time to recover.